0: last week we talked about acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 it's a test for the church in the last days i believe this passage helps us to see do you see that box in the corner there by the puzzle that's being put together i believe what's described in acts chapter 2 is something like that box if you're making that puzzle you keep that box lid close by so you can see how to make your puzzle I believe that's somehow Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 Acts. It's a way of looking at our church, our context, where what we're doing, and saying, how closely does it align with this? If not, why not? And so on and so forth. So one of the things that we see is the works that are described by, uh, about the church in Acts chapter 40, in Acts 2, verses 40, 42 through 47, is prayer, a focus on prayer, a focus on apostolic doctrine, a f- focus on fellowship and breaking bread. What we see from the heart of the people in this passage is joyful, sincere thankfulness. These are the fruits of what I will term Christ love. Okay? So you could have prayer, focus on prayer, apostolic doctrine, fellowship, and breaking of bread without joyful, sincere thankfulness. I just point that out because we're about to see how that can happen. So Ephesus, I'm going to go through three points. The last point will also be the application. The three points are Christ's proximity, Christ's proclamation, and Christ's promises. Christ's proximity, Christ's proclamation, and Christ's promises. Christ's proximity. Jesus reveals in verse 1 his proximity, how near he is, to the church of Ephesus. Now, I got a picture up there of a menorah. It has seven arms. So I want you to be able to at least have a picture. And then there's somebody tending that menorah. That's a priest there tending that menorah. So I just want you to have that picture when Jesus says, as he does, that he walks among the seven golden lampstands in verse 1. He's saying, I am very close. But he keeps increasing the nearness he is to the church. Because then he says, after he says, I walk among you, he says, I hold your ministers in my hand. He says, I walk among them, in the church, among the church. But then he says, I know your works. He says, I know you utterly. He understands their works. He knows the heart that's behind them. He understands them completely. And he calls to the church corporately, But notice also at the end, he says, the one who conquers will be given the right to eat of the tree of God. And so he's telling this church, I'm addressing you corporately, but I want individuals to listen closely as well. I want you to know, and this is something he will repeat in other letters. In one letter, he says, I know even among this church that's really bad in many ways, there are some who have kept their garments clean. So I'm aware of you corporately and I'm aware of you individually. This is very important to remember because as we move forward, the things that I'm going to say are true both corporately and individually. At one point, Jesus says that for each individual believer, there's a specific name that only he and they know. That's how deep his relationship is individually. But he also speaks to the church corporately as his bride And then we see the city coming down from God like a bride adorned for her husband. So both are true. Both are true. So Christ is very near. His nearness tells them that what he's about to utter is from a place of knowledge and understanding. He is not speaking from a distance, he's speaking of someone who knows intimately deeply has searched this church and the hearts in this church, he knows. So what he says should have weight because of who he is and what he knows. Jesus Christ is therefore the faithful witness. He is the only one who truly knows what's wrong and can truly diagnose it and give a cure. What is Christ's proclamation? Well, as you read down through this, you'll see several things. The church at Ephesus had many virtues. They had labor, they had endurance, and they had an intolerance of evil. I want to point out something. All of those things are good things, including the intolerance of evil. Jesus is praising the church at Ephesus for all of those things. Next, they have some works. They've maintained doctrinal purity. They've cast out false apostles. They've endured hardship without complaint. Now, something important to know about the church at Ephesus. F, the church at Ephesus is in the city of Ephesus. That's why they're the church of Ephesus. And in the city of Ephesus, it was a central People were always coming in and going out of Ephesus. That means they're right at the middle, the crossroads. And in Roman culture, ideas were passed this way. New ideas were passed this way. So... The church at Ephesus was probably at war with more outside ideas coming into their church on a regular basis than most churches. The job of maintaining doctrinal purity for the church at Ephesus was probably extremely difficult. There were like a constant barrage of new ideas coming in. And the church, the modern church, can really therefore uh, understand with Ephesus, because The whole modern church is because of modern technology and social media is all on a crossroads where all kinds of ideas are constantly barraging us and keeping uh, back all of these lies that are just pouring in from every direction is an extremely exhausting job, one that requires a lot of attention, one that requires a lot of endurance. And so we we can connect with them as we understand where they were in the world and how many people were coming in and out. The other thing about Ephesus is that they were a city that was literally built on the reality of a deity they called Diana. It was the center of all of their uh, social life. And so Diana was a sexually promiscuous goddess and the worship of diana was a sexually promiscuous worship it was a very big blinking light beacon we may say of darkness was ephesus and so maintaining their social purity would require a great deal of endurance because of persecution there would be a lot of pressures to begin to compromise with the society around them and to give way here and there. And again, the church in the modern time can find a place with Ephesus in this. And so they were doing the right things. I want to make this very clear. I can find, I've read this passage over and over again, I can find nothing externally that Ephesus was doing wrong. If we walked into this church, we might even be convicted and say, this church, they got a handle on this truth. They got a handle on it. There's, there's a, something real going on here. I want to point that out because I want us to understand that what Jesus is about to communicate to the church of Ephesus would have landed on them like a bomb especially after he says you are doing all those right things i am pleased with all those things in fact jesus even after he drops the bomb even after that he says nevertheless i still have this that you hate the work of the nicolaitans and basically as far as anybody can understand, the the basic premise of this group of people was that the people of God could worship in the idol temples alongside the the pagans. And even that that could be a way of witnessing to the pagans. And so there was this, this group that was coming together that was saying, hey, we can engage in the sexual immorality, we can engage in the uh, the worship festivals of the... Romans. We're free in Christ. Uh, Hey, you know, there's a verse that says that for the pure, all things are pure. So um, there's nothing that we have to be afraid of. So this is basically what the Nicolaitans were teaching. I just want to touch on that because I'm going to move on, and we're not going to talk about that, other than to point to the fact that they had the right stance towards the culture. They were both testimonially and personally pure in both their testimony and their lives. They were pure. Except for one thing. Here's the flaw. I use the NASB because I like this translation better. I think it picks up on the meaning of the passage better than the CSB. But I have this against you, says the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have left your first love. CSB says, the love you had at first. Which I don't think is necessarily wrong. It's a matter of emphasis. So here's the principles in the word of God of first love. Because we have to answer the question, what does Jesus mean by first love? Because this Greek word can mean first in a sequence of time. It can also mean first in importance, greatest. So we need to know what Jesus means by first love, if we're going to understand. I think there is a whole lot in this passage that points to a specific, very specific meaning to first love, and I would like to prove that. Now, the principles of first love are communion and fellowship, union and acceptance, rest and peace. We add to that, in Christ. Communion and fellowship, union and acceptance, rest and peace in Christ. The greatest of these is 1 Corinthians 13, of love, hope, and faith, Is love. Why is it the first love? This word here is agape. Now, a lot of people have probably heard that word if they've been in church a long time. Agape love, it's different than other kinds of Greek love. But what's really interesting about that word is that that word by itself was what they called their communion feasts. It was agape feast. It was what they called the fellowship of the believers. It was an agape fellowship. I think that's important. Here at the center of this letter to the Ephesians, Jesus is saying, "You've forgotten something." You've forgotten something in all your labor. You've forgotten something. And I think what's interesting is in First John, John says, God is agape. <laughs> Whoever they've forgotten. It wasn't what they had forgotten. It was who they had forgotten. So let's talk about communion because this is the first of the principles, communion and union. This is the first principle of first love. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All right. Jesus says this in John. Sorry, did not include the place. This is the end of John. Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And after this, we're told, many of his disciples left. Now let me ask you something. As you read that, if you're not a believer, and if you don't have much church context, it's going to be very disturbing. But even if you are a believer and even if you do have a church context, if you think of the only other places where such language is used, the only places, is cannibalism and vampirism. So we should be disturbed until we know what it means. There is a reason why many of the disciples left him. Do not pass over passages like this and think i know what they mean when it is very difficult to know what they mean jesus makes this clear you do not get this in a passing read this in fact is something you only learn through a lifetime of discipleship with the lord jesus christ this is a principle we are reminded of repeatedly when we have communion it is one of it is the most important thing that we must understand as believers so much so that if we forget it, if we don't get it, Jesus says, I'll take your candlestick away because you being a church, no matter how well you're doing in all the other areas, if you forget and leave this point, you are nothing. Just as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. Though I have all knowledge and all wisdom and can understand all mysteries, and though I give my body to be burnt, and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains, have not agape, I am nothing. And the church corporately can say the same thing. Communion is not just something we do occasionally. Communion is a constant reminder of the nature of the church. Communion is an intimate fellowship of believers with one another, however, eating and drinking point to an even more intimate communion between the believers in Christ and the Father. This communion with Christ legitimizes and fuels the communion of the saints and makes it truly Christian. The depth of the union between Christ and his people is so intimate, so deep, so meaningful that only a symbol of eating and drinking his body and blood, could even begin to portray that kind of loving fellowship. Do you understand that the reason you have to eat and drink Christ is Christ is saying, I am not satisfied with being close to you. I must be in you. It is a statement of the deepest intimacy in the world. Husband and wife can only picture it. It can only come, it doesn't even come close. It's a beautiful picture, but it doesn't even come close. God is calling you to an intimacy with himself that transcends, that is greater, that is more important, and overrules all kinds of other intimacy you could possibly have. And the world flush with sexuality, an Ephesian church flush with sexuality, where love is always being talked about and never being expressed, needs to hear. I want to know you. I already do. Do you know me? Do you know who prayed this? Jesus prayed this. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all, hey, that's you. Jesus, Jesus praying for you. You can hear Jesus praying for you. You're the ones that believed on him through the apostles' word. Here's what he's praying. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. Notice this, I highlight it in yellow, that the world may know you have sent me Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you have ears to hear? And you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. It's the creator of the universe saying that. That's one person of the Trinity saying of the other person of the Trinity, you love these people that I have like you love me. And we sit unmoved sometimes. The creator of the universe, people, your God. Loved you that are called in Christ Jesus the same way he loved his own son. And he's not satisfied with getting close to you. He wants to be in you. He wants to have such a relationship with you that there is an inseparability. And that's what communion represents when you eat and drink. It is a call to remember me. He says, remember me. I'm the one that made this happen. I'm the one that made this possible. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Friends, these concepts... I know they're outside of the normal way we think. It's hard for us to understand. It is hard for us to believe. It's not only hard, it's impossible. You need the Holy Spirit to open and enlighten you to this reality. But this reality is the only reality that can make you begin to look like Jesus Christ And it is only in looking like Jesus Christ that the church is truly a testament to the love and power of Almighty God in whatever society they are living in, under whatever circumstances they are suffering. For the church in the end times. Love consists in this, we are told in 1 John 4, 10 through 12, love consists in this, not that we loved God that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is love. Friends, do you understand this con- This concept. He is saying that when you love agape love, it's the Father's love. Love does not consist in us loving God. Love consists in God loving us and sending his Son for us. Love is not liking someone a little better. Love is not doing a few nicer things. Love is not talking to that person that you don't like across the room. Love is not any of those things. But let me tell you, love will make you want to do those things. We have no love that God approves of until we know the love that God has given. Here's the second principle, first love, rest and peace. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Do you know, friends, it doesn't say he was planning on starting again. See, we miss something. We don't understand Sabbath, do we? Why did God rest? Did God stop working? Did he stop upholding the universe? Did he stop doing any of those things? Absolutely not, of course not then why are we told that he rested? What's the point? What's he doing? Well, it all goes to, this is sandwiched into him completing the human race, which all of chapter one is leading up to. And then after the statement that he is resting, then it tells us a little deeper into how he created the human race and how the woman was taken out of the man and how he brought them together and they're unified. And he says, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And right in the middle of all that, God says, and I rested Notice Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 2, verse 10 as well. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news, just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. We always talk about in this church, we talk about on a regular basis what we are created to be. What we're created to do. In many churches we talk about, well, we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Oh, we're supposed to tend the garden. Yes why for what just so we can have more children and tend a garden and enjoy those two things immensely no I'm sorry that's not what it is sin has convinced us that's what it is that's why sex and pleasure are all we know to serve no this garden was a place and this place had a purpose and that purpose was communion with God. So we keep the place, and we multiply the humans that are having communion with God as they're having communion with one another. That was the purpose from the beginning. That's what we were created to do. And friends, that's what the rest he is referring to is. It's realizing you were created for no other major purpose but intimacy with almighty God. God that is expressed in intimacy towards one another. That's why the two commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself because that's what you are created to do. That's what you were made to do. And listen, friends, this is the only thing that separates us from all the other creatures, including the highest heavenly beings, that God wanted communion with us that was a communion of fellowship, friendship, and kinship. There are no angels that get that. We are the greatest of all God's creatures because we're, not because we're powerful than all of his creatures. We're not even pow- more powerful than many of his animals. We're not because we're strong. It's not because we're great. It's not because we're exceedingly wise. It's not because we are big and, and just hard to deal with. We're not like Satan. Satan was huge. He still is. He's powerful. And he's jealous. He's envious. Because humanity was created to have fellowship with God in intimacy. Not just praise, not just obedience, but intimacy. This is the rest that we have. Now, if you will remember, last time I talked about this chiasm. Ephesus and Laodicea are connected ideas. Myrna and Philadelphia connected ideas in those letters. And then Pergamon, Thyatira, and Sardis, there's connected ideas in all of those. The reason I bring this up is Laodicea is the completion of the letter to Ephesus. If you put them together, you get the whole picture. I'm going to be preaching on Laodicea, so I'm not going to go too deep into that, but I want us to see something. This is how the Lord Jesus closes his words to Laodicea. He says, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When he says repent, he's saying open the door and begin to have communion with me. Don't leave me. Outside of your perfect church. And most certainly, do not leave me outside. Your imperfect church. You need me and intimacy with me. I feel like I missed a. No, we got it. Okay. Good. Sorry. Christ promises one who holds the keys. Remember what he says to the churches? I'm the one that holds the keys to hell and heaven. I'm the one that can open and no one can close and the one that can close and no one can open. This has to do with keeping promises. He's saying, I have the ability, I have the authority, I am able to keep my promises. Not only am I able, but I will. Here's one of his promises. I say, threat a lot of people are like, is that a threat? And somebody responds, no, well, that's a promise. We know what that means. So I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Why? Jesus told his church, you're the light of the world. A lamp's not supposed to be put under a bushel. You know what he else told him? By this, the world will know that you are mine by your love for one another. What love? Agape love. Where does that love come from? The knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and why we're created and why we exist at all. Have intimacy with God. True intimacy. Deep intimacy. The deepest of all. He says, if you're not doing that, then you're not doing anything. You're a dark place. Of those seven lamps, one's out. One of the jobs of the priests in the temple was to trim the lamps and keep oil in them day and night to keep them burning. Remember this letter is written to the angel of the church? There are people that are given the job, I'm one of those people, of making sure it's trimmed, making sure there's oil. What's the oil? What's the trimming? Hey, there's virgins in a parable that forgot to get enough oil and their lamps went out while they were waiting. And when the bride came... They couldn't go with the bride because they didn't have their lamps trimmed and oil. It's individual and it's corporate. He's saying, if you don't do that, then I'm going to remove it. I'm going to replace it. There's a lot more here. But notice this. It's a promise. If they do not begin to see again, they're in need. Remember, see is the same thing. We are rich and in need of nothing. Don't begin to see their need for the Lord Jesus Christ and know that their main purpose in existence on this earth is to know the love of God and extend that love by his spirit to the rest of the world that they know nothing. But it's not the kind of love that you can just learn about. It's not the kind of love you can study yourself into. It's the kind of love you have to know by knowing God. Through his word, by his spirit. He's saying repent and we're like how can we repent? I always believe the first step in repentance is knowing you have a problem. And with God, the second step is asking him to help you find out how. And the third step is doing what he said to do. Hear. Pay attention. And do not assume that you know because you've protected the church from all those evildoers and because you've kept the false apostles out and because you've kept the doctrine pure and because you know it inside and out. Do not believe that you understand until you are Filled with the fullness of Almighty God. The disciples actually had to wait for the Spirit to come. Why? Because they could do nothing. Jesus told us this. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. I am the vine. You are the branches. If my life is not flowing in and through you, you bear no fruit. And if you bear no fruit, I'll cut you off There is no way, there is no step-by-step program where you can begin to understand the love of God and begin to be filled with the love of God other than going to the source. God's love for you is immense. And he says focus on that. Focus on what you were created to be. Focus on who you are. Focus on Jesus Christ, who is the express image of the Lord God Almighty, the one who created you, the one who's calling you to himself. Notice this. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Tree of life. Hmm. Oh, that's back in Genesis 2, isn't it? It's it's at the middle of the garden. Why in the middle of the garden? Why is the tree of life in the middle of the garden? And why doesn't it talk much about them eating it? And why Does God block the way after they sin so they can't eat it? Well, this whole passage, I believe, points strongly to Jesus Christ calling his church to communion with him. The churches in the middle, a couple of them, are having communion with idols. And he's calling them away from that to communion with him. Some are not having communion with idols, but they're not having communion with God. That's Ephesus, and Laodicea. Some of them, though, are communion with Christ. They're suffering terribly. Their communion with Christ is a communion of suffering. But this whole entire seven, not surprising, right? Communion's at the center of what it means to be believers. That's what we do at church. It's what he called the church to do. Why is it, would it be surprising that these seven letters seem to have a communion uh, theme? But if it is a communion theme then this right to eat of the tree of life means the tree of life was the place where God and the people met in the place to commune with one another. It's within sight of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So when they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they chose not to eat of the tree of life and in choosing not to eat of the tree of life, they chose not to have the communion with God that they were created to have. All that's left is this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Who's in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The serpent, Satan. Well, so when they chose not to have communion with God and they chose to have communion, they were choosing not to have communion with God and to have communion with Satan. So when Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat of the tree of light, which is in the paradise of God, he is saying... The day is coming when we will simply sit down and eat together in person. I'll be in you, you'll be in me, I'll be with you, you'll be with me. We'll eat together in the paradise of God. And that's the hope that allows us to endure. To the end. And we're going to be learning a lot about suffering. A lot about suffering. Terrible suffering. But even that, Paul says, we are entering into the sufferings of Christ. So even in our suffering, we're having communion with the Almighty God. Because He had communion with us in our suffering. Oh man. These truths are all over the word of God. I pray the Lord will open the word of God more and more to my heart and to your heart. In closing, do you love Christ a little but want to know more and be more full of the overwhelming reality of Christ and his salvation? Yes? Then get curious. Come join this novice and these novices in love poor students of grace and let us pursue christ together let us expect great things from our great savior and let us live out these last days with the vigor of the youthful love of christ letting go of the little things so we can stretch out for the infinite glory of knowing our creator as our most intimate friend we have come to the love feast so let us feast heavenly father Your name be praised. Your name be glorified. Make us know. The Apostle Paul prayed that we would understand the love of Christ, which is beyond knowledge or understanding. Who can search it out? Who can know it? Only the Spirit, which is ours through Christ Jesus and is in us crying out, Abba, Father. Oh, Father, make us know. Help us understand. May your spirit be active in our hearts today. To your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.